Hello, everybody, and welcome to Who Knew? A history podcast. If you've been listening uh, intently for our last four episodes, you'll realize that this isn't the podcast name that you're used to. Uh, Mr. Rickson and I, I being Miss, Mrs. Allgood, decided to change the name of our podcast from footnotes to who knew? So I'm really excited about this name change. I feel every episode that we record and research, I and Mr. Rickson learn a lot of really cool things that we did not know. So hey, Mr. Rickson, how are you today? I'm good. Mrs. Allgood. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Um, so as as Mrs. Allgood mentioned, we're, we're really excited to announce that the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts. And, and as she mentioned, we, we wanted to make the name change because it was when we searched for footnotes after we published it, there were about a million different podcasts named footnotes and including some that were history related. So we wanted to pick something that was a little bit easier for you all to find. Uh, and as she said, I think, I think it really reflects sort of the spirit of the, of the podcast is that Mrs. Allgood and I are the are the kind of folks where if you if you know us for even a little bit, we we're just we love weird minutia, quirky history facts. We frequently are just sort of saying to one another, "Well, did you know? Did you know?" And that that happens literally all the time. So we have we've now replicated our our regular experience in podcast form. I agree. And I think one thing that's absolutely true, especially in today's episode, is that I often find myself thinking that I know everything that there is to know about a thing. And then I hear it from another angle or I hear something brand new about this person that I thought I understood. And it just totally changes my perspective and my my, my outlook. Um, so I think that's also a really cool thing too. I think you're right. It totally captures the spirit. You might hear a some weird thumps in the background. Uh, apartment life is going great. Um, <laughs> and by great, I mean not great because everyone in my apartment complex is at home all the time. And I think my upstairs neighbor decided this morning was the day she was going to rearrange her all of her furniture and nail a bunch of stuff to the walls. Um, so I do apologize for any background noise you might hear. Let's get into some history today. Mr. Rickson, who, who or what is our topic? When we were talking about subsequent episodes, I was sort of, I've been kind of looking at who, how can we pick somebody or, or who can we pick that might kind of align with sort of where we're talking about in American history with our students. And last week, Chef Boyardee was sort of this perfect mix of immigration, industrialization, the Great Depression, World War II. It was this, it was, I thought it was so, so great that it sort of covered all these different places. And this, this upcoming week, we're recording on, on a Thursday. And so the next week, that is upcoming, the first full week in May, we're going to be doing a little bit of work around the civil rights movement. And there are obviously so many figures that we think of with the civil rights movement with Dr. King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, the Black Panthers. And being a sports fan, I wanted to include a sports figure who was very active in the civil rights movement and and not just the civil rights movement, but activism overall. And that's Arthur Ashe. And some of the students may know who Arthur Ashe was, but for those who don't, he is, he's to me, he's this perfect embodiment of athletic achievement, of social activism, of a sort of political awareness. 
and he's he's just such he's a beautiful figure in, in my mind and and we just i i just don't think he's celebrated enough and so i wanted to i wanted to highlight him today as we talk about the the civil rights movement a little bit uh, in the coming weeks yeah i absolutely agree with this um it's so interesting so i grew up not in northern virginia uh, i grew up in a place called new kent county which is like super country middle of nowhere and the closest place to go when i was a teenager was richmond it was it's about 30 miles away so it was a 30 minute drive like if you wanted to go to the mall or to a baseball game or whatever uh you, you'd go to richmond and arthur ash's name is like kind of plastered all over richmond in a few places there's the Arthur Ashe Stadium. There's a statue dedicated to Arthur Ashe. There's a few foundations. Like it's a name that I've heard um, connected to Richmond my whole life. But I thought that I really knew all that I needed to know about Arthur Ashe, like uh, sports, whatever. But turns out there's so much more here that's actually super relevant to a lot of the stuff that we're learning in our history classes, but also to my master's thesis, which I can't believe I missed out on this guy. Um, so I'm really excited to get into him today. So let's get started somewhere. Can we start with his early life? Let's start with the birth story and go from there, I guess. He was born on July 10th, 1943 in Richmond. And of course, he's born in a time where Richmond is still deeply segregated. And Ash's father, who was Arthur Sr., Arthur Sr. took a job at what was called Brook Farm. And Brook Farm was a recreational park. Arthur Sr. was hired to be the groundskeeper at Brook Farm. And he was the groundskeeper, he was the caretaker. And part of that responsibility was he was actually given a a home on the property so that he could easily get to, you know, fixing things and manicuring the lawns and doing all of that. And Brookfield was the only public park space in all of Richmond that was available to African Americans. Every other public park was whites only. And this park included tennis courts. And so Arthur Ashe Jr gets this opportunity to play tennis constantly at Brook Farm. He was, he actually, he gravitated to tennis because he was, it was a little bit smaller. His father was worried that if he played a sport like football or basketball, it might be too physical for him. He might get injured. So he picks up tennis and he gets really good really fast. And he becomes so successful that he he catches the attention of a couple of black tennis coaches in the United States. One of them was Ronald Charity, who was his coach initially in Richmond. And then he he catches the attention of Dr. Robert Johnson. And Johnson meets Ash when he's 14 years old. And Dr. Johnson is really the most he's arguably the most celebrated tennis coach for African American athletes. Um, in in this period, he was also the mentor to Althea Gibson, who Gibson was the first African American woman to win a Grand Slam title. And and for the the students or the listeners who aren't familiar, so tennis has four major tournaments in professional tennis. There's the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, which is played in London. It's essentially tennis's British Open and the U.S. Open. So this this Dr. Johnson is very much sort of the he's the best coach when it comes to finding 
black tennis talent in the United States. And he, he discovers Arthur Ashe more or less. Okay. So I'm sorry. I have one sports ball question. So to get a grand slam, do you only have to win one of those four or do you have to win all of those four, like the triple crown and horse racing? So that's a great, great nerdy (laughs) sports question. So if you win one of the tournaments, you have won what it, you, it's often referred to as you have won a Grand Slam. Okay. Uh, for those of you guys that don't really care about sports, um, thank you for indulging us. So could you reflect on his time in high school and in college? Like, does he stay in Richmond or does he go somewhere else? Let's, let's talk about that. Arthur Ashe's high school career in Richmond was really difficult for a number of reasons. And segregation plays sort of a huge, a huge part in that. So it was interesting in, in doing my research for this, I sort of, you sort of learn as a student and as a teacher, you think of segregation in terms of segregated schools and segregated public facilities like buses and bathrooms. Segregation really was incredibly insidious in the way that white Southern leaders tried to systematically oppress African-Americans. And, and tennis is a really interesting and sports is a really interesting microcosm of that. So Arthur Ashe was going to segregated schools in Richmond, which meant that when he got to high school, he could only play against black players in Richmond and the outlying areas. So he doesn't have an opportunity to play against the best players um, in, in, you know, in the white community. African-Americans were prohibited from playing indoor tennis, which when I read that, it just, it boggled my mind that that segregation could be that insidious, that we're actually going to segregate who can play inside and who can play outside. So he didn't really have an opportunity to get practice or, or playing time in the winter. So he basically had to either play outside in the cold to practice or wait until the spring and summer. And that was really limiting for him. Now, the summers did offer him an opportunity to play tennis events elsewhere. As a matter of fact, in 1958, he became the first African-American player to compete in the Maryland State Boys Championship. So he and Dr. Johnson travel to Maryland, and he gets to compete in that tournament. But they basically reach a point where he, he simply can't succeed or excel as a tennis player in Richmond. So for his senior year of high school, he transfers to a high school in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Johnson had a close friend who lived in St. Louis and Arthur Ashe. Basically, it was, he almost like lived as, it was almost like a boarding school situation. So he, he goes and he lives with this host family and he gets to face tougher competition. He's playing players from the Midwest and the West Coast. And he eventually soars in junior rankings. He becomes the fifth ranked junior player in the United States. And he goes on to get a full scholarship to play tennis at UCLA, at the University of California, Los Angeles. When I was doing my little bit of research on Ash, I was reading on his early life and saw that his mother died when he was a very young boy. Um, I think he was like two. So he was basically raised by his father, a single dad. Yeah, I think it's, it's and I think it also sort of is connected. We'll, we'll talk about this later. So I think that Ash was already... Personally, he was a very sort of quiet and soft-spoken man. I don't think that you would have ever thought that he would become a vocal activist for a host of issues, which he does ultimately 
which he ultimately becomes. And and I think a lot of that has to do with being able to leave the segregated South and go to go to St. Louis and then ultimately go to Los Angeles. So uh, it's also important to note that Ash was really smart. He was a really, really uh, just he was incredibly well read and he was really interested in music and literature. He actually graduated first in his class in high school in St. Louis, and he goes on to UCLA in 1962, and he gets really dominant really fast. In 1965, Ash and UCLA, so he individually won the NCAA singles title in tennis. He won a doubles title that year, and UCLA won the overall college championship due largely in part to the fact that Ash was such a dominant player. And he ultimately graduates in 1966. He earns a degree in business administration. And he actually, while he was at UCLA, he was in ROTC, which meant that when he graduated, he was commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Army, and he actually served briefly at West Point. So he has this really, also this very interesting niche of his career where he not only, you know, finishes top of his high school class and goes on to graduate and he wins a national championship, but now he's in the army and he's he's serving his country. So I just think that's a really interesting mix to it. Um and and actually while he is serving in the army, he continues to participate in amateur tennis matches. So he manages to qualify for the US Open in August of 1968, and he wins the tournament. So he kind of does this kind of on a whim. He's like, oh, I'll qualify in these local tournaments, and then I get into the U.S. Open. Um, and then he goes on to win the tournament in 1968, um, and he he remains uh, the first and only African-American man to win the men's title at, at the U.S. Open. So one thing that I definitely noticed is the uh, the time period that we're in. Um, we're in 1968. He wins the U.S. Open in 1968. And if you did not know, 1968 is basically the year that America just unravels. It's one of the most tumultuous years, not just in American history, but world history. Um, there's a lot happening. So I think it, one thing that I definitely noticed in writing my thesis, which also takes place in 1968, is that there are so many crazy things that happen that you just kind of don't notice because you're also dealing with Martin Luther King getting assassinated and Robert Kennedy getting assassinated and the Tet Offensive and the height of the anti-war movement that like you just kind of don't see all of these other things that are taking place. How do you put Arthur Ashe in 1968? Can you give us a bit more context here? The unraveling is a perfect way to describe 1968. If if you had to pick like the year that the craziest things happened in American history, I think 1968 would win, would kind of win in a landslide. So as you mentioned, both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy are assassinated in 1968. Lyndon Johnson doesn't run for re-election, so the Democratic Party is fractured. George Wallace, who was the governor of Alabama, who was a segregationist, is running as a third-party candidate. There are race riots across the country. There are anti-Vietnam protests. And 1968 was also a very turbulent year for the sports community at large. So 
1968, there is going to be a Summer Olympics in Mexico City. A number of African-American athletes come together in this moment to protest the, the continued mistreatment of African-Americans, right? We are a couple, we're a decade removed from Brown v. Board of Education, but states are still segregating in the South. They're resisting uh, integration. As a matter of fact, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was also in college athletics at this time, he decides to boycott the U.S. Olympic team. He says, I'm not going to play for a country that doesn't recognize my political and social rights in the United States. The year before, Muhammad Ali had been stripped of his heavyweight title for refusing his induction to the draft to go to Vietnam. And in those 68 Olympics, that's also when the famous picture of Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who won the, the men's 200 meters, they finished first and third. They, on the medal stand, they raised their fists in a black power salute. And it was, you know, it, it was not dissimilar to Colin Kaepernick and, you know, kneeling during the national anthem. It had that level of national awareness and significance. And in the midst of all that, we have the first African-American man to win a Grand Slam tennis title in Arthur Ashe. Ashe is kind of, when we sort of put him in this moment, Ashe is still an amateur athlete. He is actually also competing internationally. He's, he's an active member of the Davis Cup teams, which is an international tournament where countries play one another in tennis competitions. And at the time, the Davis Cup was, would only permit um, amateurs. They did not permit professionals to play. And Ash really wanted to continue to play for the Davis Cup team as a, as an, as a representative of the United States. So he wins the U.S. Open, but he can't accept the prize money because if he does, he becomes a professional tennis player. So he has to skip out on, on the prize money. Um, but of course, eventually, Ash would, would eventually turn pro. Um, the Davis Cup changed its rules so that professionals could play. So he got to remain on the Davis Cup teams. He, he does go on to win two more Grand Slam titles during his career. He wins the Australian Open in 1970, and then he wins Wimbledon in 1975. And he remains the only African-American man to win any of, of the tournaments that he won. As I mentioned, again, he won the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, and the Australian Open. Um, there has never been another African-American man to win at those tournaments. I knew that he had a lot to do with tennis. And as someone who just frankly is not interested in competitive things, I just kind of stopped there and just like, oh, Arthur Ashe, played tennis and was very good at it. Um, so that's really cool. I never really put him in context with the civil rights movement. And I think that's where I was missing out on on most of his story here. I mean, he's not just a, a tennis player who happens to be Black. He's also a Black tennis player in the most tumultuous years of the civil rights movement in the United States, which kind of gives him this certain level, right, of, of influence and um, of being a, a particular role model. And I think it's really interesting, too, knowing what I've learned about Arthur Ashe today and comparing him to, say, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who give the, the Black Power salute um, at the 68 Olympics. I'm like, he's a very different kind of leader, Arthur Ashe. So it's kind of neat to think of him in the role of a civil rights, rights activist, but he's also still kind of that quiet, 
kind of soft-spoken guy. And I think that's really cool when you think about like leadership. And I think that's something I think high school students particularly, like that's something that you're kind of taught to be a leader or like you're, a, a leader is like a certain type of person, someone who's really outspoken and loud and good at talking to people and very dynamic. And as someone who is like a super shy introvert myself, you, it's kind of easy to feel excluded, right, from that particular type of person because like you're just not really going to ever have those qualities naturally. But I think Arthur Ashe is able to still um, become a really influential leader in the civil rights movement in his time, but he does it in a very quiet way, Um, which I think is interesting. When you look at the civil rights movement, it's not all very monolithic, right? Not everyone is Martin Luther King Jr. Not everyone is staging marches and what have you. Uh, There's a lot of of different shades to this particular issue. It's so cool. Yeah, I think... I think to that point, like he kind of goes against the grain in in this moment of history. I think many of the African American athletes of this period are a lot more vocal. They're a lot more visibly active in civil rights. I'm thinking of, you know, Muhammad Ali is probably the the most clear cut example, right? Ali was very vocal and very just boisterous. And I mean, you know, he was a showman. He was a boxer. That was a lot of his personality. Jim Brown, the famous uh, NFL running back, was also a very prominent civil rights leader at this time. Bill Russell is an NBA basketball player. These are all athletes that have no problem sort of getting in front of a camera, talking about these issues and, and really making people, in a lot of ways, like making people confront these issues. And Ash was just, he wasn't that way. That wasn't his personality. But we see over time his professional career as a tennis player and civil rights intersect in a really interesting place. And they actually intersect in South Africa, of all places. So in 1969, he is set to play in the South African Open. Of course, in 1969, South Africa has its apartheid government. And for the students and for listeners who are familiar, this was segregation on a national scale in the in the country of South Africa, where public facilities were segregated. They were labeled whites and non-whites. And the apartheid government in South Africa denied Ash a visa to enter the country. Now, keep in mind, in 1969, so he has won the U.S. Open. He is the number one ranked player in the world. And South Africa says, no, we're not letting you into the country. And this is the moment, I think, where Ash becomes much more vocal and active. He reapplies for the next several years to get into the South African Open. He's repeatedly denied. And he finally says, I've had enough. This is, this is ridiculous. So he actually uses the power of his, you know, sort of his bully pulpit, if you will. He testifies before Congress. He sort of helps organize a national movement to impose really harsh economic sanctions on South Africa. There's a growing sports movement or movement within the sports community at this time to ban South Africa from playing in all sorts of international events. I mean, and it was as widespread as like, South Africa didn't play in the Olympics for nearly 30 to 40 years because other countries said, you know, apartheid is awful. Um, They weren't allowed to play in the World Cup for soccer. Um, He also eventually 
gets South Africa expelled from the Davis Cup, right? I mentioned before that he was, he really loved playing internationally, but he didn't want South Africa to be able to participate because of this. And they, South Africa was ultimately banned from the Davis Cup for most of the 1970s. Um, Now, eventually, they did let Ash into the country in 1973 to play in the South African Open, but it was, it took a lot of quiet, steady leadership on, on his part. Ash was also not just a leader of sort of civil rights causes, he was also a leader of labor causes. So this was an era where tennis players really didn't have anything in the way of a union or sort of collective bargaining protections. And he actually is one of the founding members of the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals, which is which still exists today and is effectively the players union for tennis players around the world. So he, he continues to play for much of the 1970s. And then eventually he retires in 1980. And he kind of steps away from the sort of the tennis court, but he steps into this social justice role. He continues to speak out against apartheid. So he he really does very much sort of take the platform of sport and use it to talk about things that he cares cares deeply about. So that's crazy. I didn't know any of this um, about Arthur Ashe before today's episode that he was involved in so many social justice issues. The only part of uh, Arthur Ashe that I really knew as an activist was an activist for the AIDS epidemic. Could you discuss a bit more about his his diagnosis with AIDS and his activism on that front? So I think that Ashe combined with Magic Johnson the again we're talking about famous black athletes magic johnson and and arthur ashe i think did a lot to change the perception around hiv and aids so for, first off i want to talk a little bit about how ashe contracted the virus so even though ashe was a professional tennis player he actually had a, a history of heart disease and very sadly his mother as you mentioned before his mother passed away at a very very early age from heart disease and in the middle of his tennis career in 1979, he suffered a heart attack, which required bypass surgery. He suffered a second heart attack in 1983, and he had an additional bypass surgery. And this was very tragically, this was in the era before a lot of blood would have been screened for HIV. I mean, in the 80s, this was when HIV became a public health crisis. Again, this is a theme, right? We talked about Jonas Salk a couple of weeks ago. AIDS was this new sort of emerging crisis. And at the time, most doctors and the medical community believed that the only people, the only people who were contracting HIV were primarily gay men and IV drug users, so people who were abusing heroin. And so it was truly shocking that anybody could contract the virus through a blood transfusion. But that's what happened to Arthur Ashe. So it is likely believed that he was, you know, he was administered a blood transfusion during his heart surgery. And it's likely that that blood was tainted with, with HIV. Now, he, the, the diagnosis wasn't confirmed for another five years. It wasn't confirmed until 1988. He kept it a total secret from the public. 
Um, again, he was, as we mentioned, he was very quiet, very soft-spoken, even though he had sort of developed into this activist role. And he wanted to keep it quiet. But eventually, very sadly, we sort of talk about people's privacy with the press and we think about social media today. His condition was leaked to the press. And before it was going to be published, he sort of worked with some newspaper people to say, like, look, I want to talk about this before it's published sort of widespread. So he comes public with his diagnosis. And again, I think it's this related to the stigma of the disease. I think he was very hesitant at first to become a celebrity spokesperson, but he really worked to destigmatize the disease. He really tried to raise awareness that, you know, there's a reason that it's called the human immunodeficiency virus, right? He really wanted to raise awareness that this virus can take anybody. He establishes a foundation, which he called the Arthur Ashe Foundation for the Defeat of AIDS. He pushes for more government funding for research and treatment. Um, And in one of the last public statements that he ever gave on December 1st, 1992, which was designated World AIDS Day, he addressed the UN General Assembly on the need for more AIDS research and treatment. And the quote that is often pulled from that speech is, we want to be able to look back and say to all concerned that we did what we had to do when we had to do it and with all the resources required. And he continued to push for AIDS treatments, AIDS research, AIDS funding for a cure. Um, But sadly, he dies just two months after he gives that address. He died on February 6th, 1993, and he was only 49 years old when he passed away. So uh, talk about somebody who, in what I think was a relatively short life, filled it with a great deal of activism and social justice and raising awareness and not to mention athletic accomplishment, which has been, you know, which has stood the test of time now for, you know, 40, 50 years. That is absolutely incredible. That nearly brought me to tears. He did so much to help people across the world. It's the more that I've learned about him today, like if I could sum up Arthur Ashe in one word, it's just someone who is so inclusive. And I think that is like the best kind of person that anyone can be. Um, I think that's one of the best qualities in so many people. Like he is trying to help just everyone from South Africa to people at home to the LGBT community and people who are suffering from this disease. Like that is just incredible. What a life. That's awesome. As a diehard sports fan, I actually knew a lot more about him from the activism side. I knew a little bit about the apartheid stuff, and I knew certainly a little bit about his HIV AIDS, you know, and combating the disease. What I really didn't know was, I mean, I knew he was an accomplished tennis player, but he really was, he was an incredible player for his generation. Many of the athletic figures of civil rights, we we sort of tend to forget that these guys were really phenomenal players, and you know that that is a is, is is as much a part of their their legacies as is their their pushing for civil rights and social justice. All right, Mister Rickson, I think it's time for our fact off. Oh, the fact off! I love the fact off. We sort of have some facts as we're going to kind of go back. You might say we go we're going to go back and forth like a tennis match. We're going to just go you know serve and volley back and forth. Because some of these are somewhat related when we were looking at some of our our, our facts today. So 
Is that how tennis works? Because usually when I try to play tennis, I like kind of hit it and then it just kind of flops into the net. Nope. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to keep, we're going to keep a good, we're going to keep a good service game. We're going to keep, we're going to keep a good rhythm here. So I know what that means. All right. You start us off. (laughs) So, so I mentioned that Ash attended UCLA. um, And I think it's really interesting that UCLA is the alma mater of two other really important black athletes who were involved in civil rights. Jackie Robinson was actually a three-sport athlete in college at UCLA. He played baseball, football, and track and field. And then at the same time that Ash is at UCLA, Lou Alcindor, who also becomes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he converts to Islam, he played at UCLA from 1965 to 1969. And as we mentioned, Kareem famously boycotted the 1968 Summer Olympics. He refused to play because of segregation and discrimination. And I think it's it's really interesting how this one university sort of becomes the epicenter of these sort of these three black athletes who are really important to the last half of the 20th century when it comes to social right or civil rights and social justice. In 2019, so this was last year, Richmond renamed one of the biggest thoroughfares of the city, which is known as Boulevard or Boulevard, if you're from the South. Um, They renamed it as Arthur Ashe Boulevard, which was like kind of a big deal. And a lot of people were super excited about it because most people who live in Richmond are like up for some change. Um, So it cuts down the middle of Monument Avenue, which continues to be adorned with like these mammoth Confederate statues. Uh, You, Mr. Rickson, you were telling me before the podcast, you're like, man, those those statues are so big. And I was like, yeah, I grew up around them. And like when you're around something so much, you just kind of forget how weird it is for people who don't live there. Um, But like, seriously, there are statues of uh, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson that are like three stories high. They're huge. Um, So it's just, it's a really interesting look at how Richmond represents these contemporary social values of combating um, this Confederate history with contemporary social values and the social justice of people like um, Arthur Ashe. And many people at the time, and well, at the time, this was a year ago, uh, they consider it to be an act of healing. And it was a very popular move uh, by the citizens of Richmond. It's really neat. So that's actually a really good segue for one of the other facts that I put down. So you mentioned Monument Avenue and the students, we've talked about this a little bit with Confederate monuments and whether or not communities should take them down and where they sort of stand out now in the United States. Ash was not only memorialized by renaming Boulevard in Richmond, but in 1996, the city actually added a statue of Arthur Ashe on Monument Avenue. And it has been in sort of keeping with this sort of ongoing argument about statuary in the United States. Some thought that why should we put a statue of Arthur Ashe among these Confederate leaders. It, it sort of doesn't belong artistically or, or even metaphorically, right? It's like we're, we're going to have like Richmond's greatest son next to these individuals who wouldn't have viewed him, you know, very favorably would have looked down on him. But there were others who thought that it represented positive change, that it was this artistic expression of Richmond evolving and changing and uh, the statue is is still there to this day. Um, it's it's if you drive down Monument Avenue, I mean, you literally pass 
Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and then you come across the the Arthur Ashe statue. To follow that was something quirky. Um, Richmond loves Arthur Ashe, but Ris- Richmond also really hates the Arthur Ashe statue so much. <laughs> I, I we I'll have to put a picture of this up there somewhere for everybody to see. But it is nationally ranked as one of the most unintentionally horrifying statues in the entire country. It's actually. The third scariest statue behind the scary Lucy statue of Lucille Ball in New York and a really creepy one of Kurt Cobain that's somewhere in Washington. But yeah, the statue of Arthur Ashe is him like kind of like grinning and like smiling, but like his eyes look kind of evil. And he's got a book held up in one hand and a tennis racket held up in the other hand and there's like all of these kids that like have their mouths open and it looks like they're screaming and like he's about to like beat these kids with a book and a tennis racket it's just a very unflattering statue it's not it's not a good look it you're you're absolutely right we we should we should make a point to post it on our google site or on uh my djo for the students because it really is it's 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 not a flattering depiction, um, nor is it thematically. It does. I mean, to, you described it really well. It, it looks like he's about to hit these kids with the tennis racket. It's not 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 particularly it's good. The stuff of nightmares. It's kind of funny. It is. Uh, oh boy. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, hey, thanks so much for listening today. I hope you learned some really good stuff. Thanks, everybody. So as as we mentioned, we're going to continue to push out our podcasts. You can listen again on Apple Podcast, on Spotify, on a number of other platforms. You can always check out the podcast on the homepage at anchor.com. Um, but for Mrs. Allgood, this is Mr. Rickson. And thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.